is a great delight to be here. Um, we're just having an amazing experience seeing snow <laughs> and our frost. So um, uh, we're really enjoying the, the physical geography and the, the climate that you put on for us. Um, we're also really enjoying getting to know people. Um, the weekend at the castle has just been terrific. Um, friendly, warm, godly people who really minister to us. And uh, it's a great privilege to be here um, continuing Christian fellowship uh, the way we're going to work this morning is, as Johnny said, we're going to focus in on Isaiah 36, 37, 38 and 39 because I think um, if you wanted to introduce your congregation to the book of Isaiah, that would be a great place to start. And I want to show you how, in a way, those four chapters almost function like a table of contents to the themes of the book. So what I'm hoping you come away with today is a sense of, hey, here's a five, four, five-week sermon series on Isaiah that I could do. I'm hoping you can walk out with something as practical as that. But I'm also hoping that just sitting with those chapters for our two hours together will just either remind you or open up some themes of Isaiah for you, just so that you'll feel a bit more confident. But I think we all get a bit overwhelmed by these big 66 chapters on books. So just to have a sense of, yes, actually, I do understand the themes and the big ideas of it can be encouraging to us. So if you want to open your Bible, I'm going to actually begin with a sample sermon. Like I said, to do some preaching and to do some lecturing. So that's um, what we're going to do. So I'm going to read to us from Isaiah chapter 32. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pools on the road to the washing of the field, Eliakim, son of Josiah, the palace administrator, Debnar, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that skin and reed in the staff, which feet of a man's hand and wings of which he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who also depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, <coughs> if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master? even though you are depending on him with the barrier of Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Elijah, Sednar, and Joah said to the field commander, Please, speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people of the war. But the commander replied, 
Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall? Who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king said. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. <coughs> Make peace with me and come out with me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own kitchen until I come and take you to a land like your own. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyard. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphar? Where are the gods of Sephardim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has ever been able to save his land from me. How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, Do not <coughs> Then Eliakim, son of Hezekiah, the talented minister, <coughs> the secretary, and Joah, son of Ahaz, the reporter, went to Hezekiah with a closed hand and told him, not he who forms the ear worth the time it takes to hear? Is not he who forms the lips for speaking, who hears when he speaks? Dear Lord, please speak and make a decision. Amen. We are people of great worth and greater possibilities who have always always found the wisdom and strength to come together as one nation, to widen the circle of opportunity, to deepen the meaning of our freedom, to form a more perfect union. Our best days lie ahead. God bless you and God bless the United States <coughs> of America. Well, no wonder I got sucked into the West Wing. That was a grab from a fictitious State of the Union speech by the fictitious President Bartlett. And doesn't it sting? How did the repetition of always get you? We have always, always found the wisdom strength. What about the assonance of deepen the meaning of our freedom? What about that metaphor of a widening circle of opportunity? A lot of time in the West Wing is given to the crafting and weighing of words. Sometimes we hear Toby Ziegler, the communications director, grappling with his speech writing staff. They'll leave vigorously from the first sentence. Oh, we're not going to vigorously pursue campaign finance reform. No, we're going to pursue it regularly. Not vigorously? No, not tonight. The word vigorously is inflammatory. And sometimes we hear the quick-witted press secretary, CJ Craig, after the State of the Union speech, she's on a TV chat show and she's beaming with happiness. 
Genoma, the president is a commanding public speaker, and the bar is usually set quite a bit higher when it's a major address. But tonight is clear that we're doing just there. The master complex says, my official tally has been interrupted for applause 73 times. Oh, because I counted 72, but I'll take your count. It's all unbelievably stage managed and contrived, but kind of exciting at the same time. If he thinks that the president needs to surround himself with words, mystery, scripts, and consider every syllable, because they recognise that power is effective through speech. And I think that view is profoundly shared by the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 76, you would have picked up, is dominated by words. It's a record of a big speech. And today I want us to think hard about the words and the word that can shake us. Now all of us, I think, would agree that the book of Isaiah is long, it's puzzling in parts, and most of the book is poetry, but then in chapters 36 and 39 you get narrative, and narrative that's remarkably similar to two kings. And I've come to view these four narrative chapters as the centre or the core of the book. They provide the historical setting for much of the poetry, and they provide the historical evidence for much of the theology of the book. So, um, we're planning to look at them today, and as I was preaching in the church series, I'd use it as a rationale for why I might open up the series to you. So what's happening in Isaiah 36? Well, basically, you're aware that basically the city of Jerusalem is under siege by Assyrian soldiers, and a number of events have caused this to happen. History tells us that Isaiah lived during the days of the Neo Assyrian Empire, and little states like Judah and Israel fluctuated in being pro or anti Assyrian, and anti Assyrian sentiment tended to be met by displays of Assyrian power. On the occasion in Isaiah 36, a further piece of background is that about 30 years earlier, the king of Jerusalem was being bullied by his northern neighbours, and he asked Assyria for help. But of course, once Assyria was mobilised, it wasn't going to politely stop at Judah's border and leave them alone. So that's what the historians would tell us. But the book of Isaiah affords us another perspective as well. The people of God in Isaiah's day were wealthy and comfortable. Religion was chugging along but making no impact on people's hearts and people's lives. And the textbook summary of the 8th century is hypocrisy and injustice. The Assyrians were in town because God had some discipline to do in the lives of people who'd grown careless with the things of God. Strangely, the book of Isaiah doesn't record a military battle for us, even though it could have narrated <coughs> some 46 Judean cities before the event here. What the book chooses to record for us is a war of words. The Assyrians' first move in attacking Jerusalem is to fire not arrows, but accusations. Not spears, but stings, not stones or swords or shields, but true teasing and temptation. I think we need to notice that. It's actually part of the message of this part of the Bible to us. Kings can affect their will just by and they can spread their kingdom just by sending messengers. 
words are weapons in the clash of kingdoms in Isaiah. So what is said and what is listened to and what is believed are huge issues in the book of Isaiah. And of course they're huge issues today. At SNBC, we recently opened a second campus with the 10 minute walk from our main campus. And I work there now. Um, but some days I look out at what the builder and um, his staff are doing, like laying turf or putting mulch on a garden. <coughs> or I see the architect arrive and, and him discussing what colour these walls are going to be or what, what this wall is going to look like. And I really envy them because I think you can go home at the end of the day and say, well, this morning that wasn't turf and today it is. This morning that was an empty brick wall, but tonight it's a, it's a green wall or a pink wall or something. So what do I do, I think? I just balk. I just balk and then I mark essays and then I stand up and then I balk and then I mark essays. And sometimes I think, boy, why am I doing things? Why do I just talk about stuff all day? So it's good for me to stop and think, well, actually, the way that a king can affect his power is by sending messages to all. I reckon at times in the preaching ministry, we can feel a bit disheartened, can't we? Why do I just talk? Well, why do you just talk? Because the kingdom of God comes through preaching and the speaking of the word. Maybe next time you're feeling like it's all a bit old-fashioned to go and send missionaries who are going to speak into the world. You can think about the king of Assyria sending this commander to speak because he's aware of how fiercely powerful he can be. Now the speech of the Assyrian commander is masterful here. Do you see he's got a driving question in verse 4? On what are you basing this confidence of yours? What are you trusting in that you haven't yet surrendered to? <coughs> now that's a great question, and it's almost like the Assyrian has been to a modern school for preachers. <coughs> he's got a big question that's going to engage his audience, and he's even got a three-point outline. My big question is, what are you trusting in? And here are three possible ideas he says: you might be trusting yourself, you might be trusting the nation, you might be trusting God. And then his altar call is this. Why don't you come and trust in the king of Assyria? Come forward, the buckets will wait. Come forward and put your trust in the king of Assyria. So it's quite a fascinating little sermon we've got here. A sermon that's much like our sermon, but is completely wrong. Well, let's think about the three points of his sermon. He's saying, what are you trusting in? Well, you might be trusting in yourself. Have a look at verse 5. You say you have military, you have strategy and military strength. It seems that Hezekiah thinks that he's got strategy and strength, and there's already been a hint of that back in verse 2. Have a look there. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from the king, the king Hezekiah at Jerusalem, when the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool. Now, if you remember some of your archaeology, you know Hezekiah built waterworks into Jerusalem. So standing by an aqueduct is quite a menacing place to stand because they're saying, do you really think everyone here is going to have enough to drink if the Assyrians really do decide to attack you? So it's kind of like saying, Hezekiah, how much water have you really got? How many resources do you really have to stand against us? 
Now, what's strange about the Assyrian raising this issue of self-reliance is that it's exactly an issue that the prophet Isaiah raises as well. And it's a major theme of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah hates it when the kings of Judah count their weapons, build fortresses, and don't bother to pray. Let me read you from Isaiah 22, 8 to 11. Isaiah 22, 8 to 11. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defences. You stored up water in the lower pools. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the walls. You built a reservoir between the two walls and the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard to the one who planned it long ago. Amazing that the preaching of Isaiah and the sermon of the Assyrians are so similar. The same pattern happens when Judah next object is trust. See verse 6, the issue there is trusting in the nation. In this case it's Egypt, and the Assyrians taunt that it's laughable to trust Egypt. Egypt is a splintered reed of the staff which fears of the Mantan and Jerusalem which is then banished. Now once again, the Assyrian is uncannily in tune with the prophet. Since Isaiah chapters 30 and 31 record an extended consideration of the futility of trusting Egypt's strength. I'm going to flick back there. Isaiah chapter 30. Woe, verse 1, 30 verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt save the refuge, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shame will bring you disgrace. Now the Assyrian doesn't stop there. He also mocks the value of trusting in the Lord. And he employs distortion at this point. We think that Hezekiah centralised worship in Jerusalem, that's talked about in 2 Kings, and maybe the people at the time thought that as he was shutting down places of worship, maybe they slightly misunderstood what he was doing and wondered if he was stopping them worshipping the Lord. Well, if that little seed of doubt was there, the Assyrian comes in and kind of blows it up. <coughs> and so that's what that verse 7 is all about. He's saying, how can you say that the Lord's going to look after you when Hezekiah's been shutting down the places where you used to worship the Lord? I think it's a bit of distortion going on there, but it's good propaganda. Now, on this third dimension, the Assyrian will be shown to be profoundly wrong. The book of Isaiah's message is that it really is worth trusting in the Lord. He will come and save. But instead of wanting the people to trust in the Lord, the Assyrian wants them to trust in him. And you can see in verse 8, he says, come and make a bargain with me. And then I just love verses 6, 10 and 17. He says, you know, come onto my side and you'll eat from your own vine and fig tree. That very ancient Near Eastern way of describing the good life. This guy's amazing in his propaganda. He's saying, you know, surrender and I'll take you on a magnificent holiday 
and life will be wonderful. It's almost like he's the new Moses or the new Solomon who's going to take them to the promised land or, or create a golden age for them to live in. But I think he's just describing deportation, a wily Assyrian strategy that decimated the smaller nations of the day. Well, can you hear all this military propaganda in this strangely spiritual sermon? What are you trusting in? That's the big question. Are you trusting in yourself and your own strength? Are you trusting in the alliances you build around you? Now, this question really preaches, doesn't it? If someone followed you around for a week, what answers would they have to give to the fierce commander's question? On what are you basing this confidence of yours? On whom are you depending? If someone followed me around for a week, they'd see that most of my salary each week or fortnight is spent to pay for a house. So they might write down, this person trusts in physical protection and hopes that a stable address will make his life safe and happy. If someone followed me around for a week, they'd notice that most of the people I hang around with are Christians. So they might write down, this person seems to need people around him who agree with him so that he feels like his thoughts are good and valid. If someone followed me around for a week, they'd see me worrying about the next lecture that I had to write or fussing about a sermon or something I was writing. And they'd write down, this person really does depend on their job to feel good about themselves. You know, this Assyrian speech is very penetrating in the question that it asks. But there's another dimension to it that I want us to consider. It, it's clever and compelling because it contains truth, half-truth, and lies all blended together so you can't quite tell where truth stops and lies start. We've already seen that it is actually true that Hezekiah shouldn't trust in his own strength. It is actually true that Hezekiah shouldn't trust Egypt. It is actually true, ironically enough, that the Assyrians have been sent by the Lord. He's dead right in that. It's true, too, that Assyria has been unstoppable. Now, I wonder if you use the truth to explain away your reluctance to trust. I'm in my early 40s, and I seem to be surrounded by people who are going through a second adolescence and throwing things out because they're claiming they've discovered something that's true. So I've got a friend who recently said to me, yes, I've left, left my husband because our marriage was a chore and a routine. I'm finally being truthful about what I want in my life. I've got another friend who said recently, yes, I'm not a believer now because the gospel accounts of the, resurrect of the resurrection are not all that convincing. And my 20 years of being a Christian never felt right. I'm discovering the truth now. And I can convince myself of all these true reasons why I shouldn't trust God. I mean, if I, if I live a life of generosity and self-sacrifice and service in response to the words of Jesus, well, it's true that I'll just get exhausted, I'll get disappointed, I'll be filled with regret. That's true, isn't it? Isn't it true that I should gather around myself as much money and status and security <coughs> as I can? Why am I reminded of the serpents in the garden? Why am I reminded of the Satan in the wilderness? <coughs> when the taunts rise up in our hearts and heads, 
we need to bravely resolve to silence them no matter how true they sound and to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now like the serpent and like the Satan, the Assyrian serves up his truth accompanied with lies. We've already seen about verse 7 about Hezekiah shutting down the worship of Yahweh in his portion. And in verse 19, the claim that Assyria has defeated many other gods only works if you believe that every city has its own God and that the Lord is simply a localised deity with a set Jerusalem. The hard thing, of course, as I said, is knowing when the truth stops and the lies start. I found an entertaining website that lists hundreds of excuses <coughs> for all kinds of situations that fuse together truth and untruth beautifully. So you can justify yourself in any circumstance. What you can believe, everyone's entitled to one mistake. Geniuses are often unappreciated. I'm having an off day. I'm going through a bad phase. I didn't want to make everyone else look bad. I didn't ask. I had no choice. I haven't been the same since Elvis died. <laughs> <laughs> or these ones. Can you judge when truth has turned into lies? It doesn't matter if I'm greedy. God will forgive me. If I'm manipulative with my children, who will ever know? If I'm aggressive with my wife or girlfriend, it's not a big problem. My prayerlessness is a private matter and doesn't affect anyone, so there's no real need to work to change it. Well, I've been talking about what the Assyrian says, but Isaiah is also interested in how the Assyrian says. If you pick up there was a bit of interest in this passage on language, what language will the Assyrian choose to speak? And, and it's the big real sense of either the public servants wanting to use a sophisticated language that only they will understand, so he wants to come and use a popular language so that everyone will understand. Now I wonder why the writer of Isaiah bothers to give us that sort of information. Well, in the book of Isaiah as a whole, the theme of not understanding is really big. You probably know the famous call of Isaiah in chapter that even though he's to be a messenger, the reason is to preach, he is to preach, is so that people won't understand what he's saying. Every sort of lecture is nightmare, really. Or <coughs> I think the two o'clock class after lunch, I think, oh, here we go with Isaiah 6, the ever-speaking but never proceeding. <laughs> Everyone will be dozing instead. But of course, for Isaiah, it was much more tragic than that. I mean, it's a horrible vocation to be given. It's like, off you go, and you spend your life preaching and your preaching will actually confirm people in their heart-heartedness. In Isaiah's day, some of God's people were so far from God that they did not want the voice of God to touch them in any way. See no more visions, they said to the prophets. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah even sends up the religious teachers of his day for sounding like drunk, babbling to babies. The people have come to love, love religious talk that is a meaning that is as meaningless as do 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 and da 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 table table table. But I think it just means do 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 da da da. 
Isaiah says that the people are going to be judged for all of this lack of understanding and stopping of communication from God. They're going to be judged by that, by God sending foreign soldiers who will speak foreign languages. So what an irony when the Assyrian soldier turns up and starts speaking the local language. And it's actually the Judean leaders who desperately want him to become unintelligible. What all this means is that for the hard-hearted, stubborn people of Jerusalem, the word of God is now this. You will eat your own filth and drink your own urine. And it's spoken in their native tongue, loud and clear. A whole lifestyle of trying to ignore and silence the word of God brings them to a desperate place where God has only one thing to say. You will eat your own filth and drink your own urine. Jesus said that at the judgment some people will hear the voice of God say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is sobering stuff, isn't it? If we don't listen well, we can end up unable to hear. If we don't listen well, we can end up unable to hear. And don't think this is just a message of Isaiah. It's in Proverbs, it's in Romans, and it's almost a refrain in the Pesach. So we need to ask this morning, are we in danger of silencing the word of God? Well, surely not us. Look at what we're here doing right now. Well, in Isaiah's day, it was the religious who seemed most skilled at silencing God. This has got me thinking, what is it that can make me not be a good listener to the word of God? Well, for me, part of it is just having too many words to deal with each day. Mobile phones, email, newsletters, TV, radio, they're all beckoning to my attention and gobbling up my time. So I need to take power and take control and turn some things off so that there's time and brain space left for God. I've noticed that I can fiddle with emails much of the day when I've got a day at my desk. And so I've got a, a stunk of wood and some phone books so that there's a place for me to put my laptop out of arm's reach so that sometimes when I sit at my desk I need to go and sing alone and sing. Lisa sometimes uses her driving time to pray or to ponder sermons in scripture, but that takes the discipline of not always turning the car radio on or having it set in such a way that it automatically comes on when you start the car. For me, sometimes listening to the word of God is hampered by being too academic. I'm part of an essay creating exam marking culture that asks for the Bible, hmm, what does it mean? And it's easy for that culture to be alive in churches as well as in colleges because we do a great job of teaching it to people in colleges. How many times have you been in a Bible study group where the leader only raises a question about application when there's only three minutes of the evening left? And they say, oh darn, we didn't get to application. I've been teaching Sunday school this year and for too many weeks in a row I haven't been disciplined enough with my preparation or with managing the talkiveness of the group, but that's happened. 
and we've I've thought that gives them content, but we haven't done any consideration of how it came to them. And so I've offered people a chance to engage with the Bible for what it really is, more than words to learn. <coughs> I guess it's kind of safe and easy to ask, what does it mean? But it's always been better to ask, what can I obey? Eugene Peterson says, a simple act of obedience will open up our lives to this text far more quickly than any number of Bible studies and dictionaries or concordances. Calvin says, all right knowledge of God is born of obedience. I think I can lose the edge of my obedient listening because I've become too academic. And something else. I think I can lose the edge of my obedience <coughs> because I kind of lie to myself that I don't have choices in my life. Here I am in my 40s and life seems like a big list of responsibilities. The train timetable determines the time of my alarm clock. The children's needs of breakfast determines my early morning activity. My lecture timetable governs my day. Meetings and dishwashing and ironing take over the night. And I've noticed that when I chat with friends, we used to dream about all the choices we would make in the future. Now we discuss our visits to the doctor and apologise for how long it's been since we've seen one another. It's like we've all made our big choices and we now just have to go on and live them out. And that mindset can take over when I read the Bible. Oh, well, I can't really do anything about this command to be generous because my budget's already set for you. I can't really do anything about this commandment to love because I've already got children of my own who need need my attention and that's enough. Now some of those beliefs are true to some extent, but every day in how I live my life out, there's always scope to obey God more, to do things in a way that's more loving, to do things in a way that's more joyful or more gracious if I keep listening to God urging me to do so. Maybe for you it's not the responsibility, but there's some barrier that exists in your mind that limits the potential of obedience in your life. You're saying to yourself, well, I'm just about in my season of retirement and it's time for me to just do what I want to do. You might say, my upbringing was so troubled that I can't help being the way that I am. You might say, this is just the way we do things in our family and there's no reason to change. And we hear the Bible each week with no intention of growth or repentance or newness. And so we fail to hear the Bible for what it actually is and what it actually requires of us. Yes, we must listen well. Well, one more thing as we finish this sermon with. Something that I'd love to think about as I've been sitting with Isaiah 36 is that for those of us who are in Christ, we're not actually being oppressed by the Spirit and saying, you are going to drink your own urine and eat your own filth. God so wants to bring a word of life to us, and God so wants to be understood by us, that he steps way beyond a crafted speech or a translation the Word of God has become flesh so that He's human like you and He can understand you and know you and get you and sense your fears and 
feel your responsibility, it can be like a priest to you and for you right now. And the word of God become flesh has sent his spirit to live in you so that he can empower you and prompt you and grow you and change you so that communication between you and God can be real and living and clear. That's what Isaiah dreamed of. Chapter 30, verse 21. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And you know those times, don't you? When you hear the voice of the living word speaking to the fears and the lies that we've been talking about this morning. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Contrast that with the Assyrian threatening that you'll only have urine to drink. Or contrast the Assyrian thief text tactics with Jesus when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Or contrast the Assyrian threatening to wipe out your home city with the words of Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me, in my Father's house of many Jews. I'm going there to prepare a place. The word of God is speaking to us. The word that God is speaking to us is so positive and so generous, so available and near and life-giving that we surely want to resolve to be good, true and open listeners to it. Is not he who forms the ear worth the time it takes to hear? Is not he who forms the lips of speaking to be heeded when he speaks? We are people of great work and greater possibilities who will always, always be given the wisdom and strength to trust and not to fear. Our best days lie ahead because God has blessed you and whispers, speaks, shouts blessing to you day after day. I don't know if God has blessed the United States of America, but can you hear how much he has blessed you? living speaking God as we transition now from hearing preaching of your word to talking about preaching of your word help us not to become clever with ways to hold your word but please please speaking to us and please address us so that we can address your people and lead them up to the glory
still funny now, I just preached a sermon about how you shouldn't become too academic about teaching. And now, we're going to talk about how I did that. So, there you go. I'm feeling like I'm being highly ironic at the front here. So, that was a sample sermon, point one. And it leads me into point two on the handout that John just gave. The place of Isaiah 36 to 39 in the book as a whole. And I'll just tell you a little bit about my teaching experience. I teach Isaiah at a number of levels, degree and master degree and so on. But a course that I teach every year is two hours of diploma students, where I get an hour a week. Um, it's a, it's a non-accessible subject, but I get an hour a week to introduce our diploma students to the book of Isaiah. And I've been doing that for years, and they kind of tease me about the fact that I try to race through 56 chapters in 12 hours, and they're all utterly confused by the end of it, and I feel completely incompetent as a teacher. Anyway, as the years have ticked by, I've really thought a lot about that class, because it is quite impossible, 56 chapters, 12 hours, how can I do this? And I noticed how confused people were getting, but I also noticed something in myself, that as I was teaching the early chapters, I'd be saying, hey, look, the Assyrians are coming. And then I'd say, hey, flip to chapter 36 and you'll see that they arrive. Or I'd say, um, God's going to save the city. See all these prophecies about God's salvation. Hey, let's flip forward to chapter 37 and we'll see when that happens. And I realised that I was lecturing the first 35 chapters, but almost needing 36, 37, 38 and 39 to help the students get it. So one year, I thought, I'm going to start at chapter 36 in week one and see what happens. And I didn't scientifically measure it, but I would say that the level of understanding of the book of Isaiah really increased in that class once we started with the narrative and then went back. Um, I became so convinced of that that when I was asked to write a commentary on Isaiah, um, I said, well, can I start at chapter 36? That goes against everything in me that says we respect the structure and order of the word of God. So I said it's a it's a it's a listener centered decision. Anyway, it got past the editor. And so my book starts at chapter thirty six based on that idea that people lack the historical background and that the historical background then helps them make sense of the more poetic prophecies in the earlier chapters. Um, out of that as well, then I've spoken at conferences where I've taken people through Isaiah 36 to 39. And did you notice in that sermon how we had some commentary on Isaiah 6, how we went back to Isaiah 30, we went to Isaiah 22? Notice how, how easy it was to dip back into the prophecies and see the connection. Now I reckon over a five or six week period of church, you could sit in these narrative chapters in the book of the book and you could use them as a board to other chapters, and I reckon your congregations would get a sense that they could see what's going on in the book of Isaiah as a whole. So, am I the only one who thinks Isaiah 36 to 39 is really central and important? Well, no. Um, over the page, I've, um, I've got a lady at work to type out the um, observations of a fellow called Dorothy. Now you'd be aware that chiasms are very fashionable in the study of the Old Testament, finding these A, B, C, D, C, D, A sort of patterns. I'm, I'm a bit of a chiasm fan, I've got to admit. But one year, um, our third year students at the end of the year conference put up pages of phone books and managed to put a lecture together on why it was a chiasm, which is 
feel like standing up to convince me to build this piece of company. So, um, occasionally I have some reservations. But, uh, David Dorsey has done a, a lot of work. If you look there on page <coughs> two, he thinks that chapter one to four are introductory messages of condemnation, teasing, and future restoration. And a lot of the vocabulary, two of those underlined words, a lot of the vocabulary appears in chapters 55 to 66, which are concluding messages of condemnation, teasing, and future restoration. Now, that's like a huge category, it's not really that helpful. But anyway, the vocabulary repetition is, is really worth noticing. He then says that chapters 13 to 27 are oracles to the nation, and they're largely about the humiliation of the proud king of Babylon. And then lo and behold, in 49 to 54, there are servant messages, which are about the exaltation of the humble servant. And the linguistic connection he sees between the descriptions of the king of Babylon and the descriptions of the suffering servant are really penetrating and amazing to be honest so that's very interesting. Point C is a collection of woes, don't trust an earthly power. Um, and then that, that finds its mirror in Yahweh's supremacy over idols, don't trust an idol. Which then makes for him the centre of the book, these historical narratives that say God's Yahweh's supremacy over all earthly and divine power. Now, in my commentary, I've also gone with a seven point, um, seven element structure slightly different chapter divisions, but pretty darn similar. Now, the two Old Testament commentaries were really one another was always remarkable. So, um, actually what I am finding in the study of Isaiah is how, how many people are now finding seven sections or thereabouts, and how consistently these chapter divisions are appearing. So I think there's transforming Zion in one of and then transforming the world down the bottom. Section 2 is about transforming the nation. And then section 2 is serving Zion and the nation. Section 3 asks the question, should we trust in Egypt? And I, I think probably Dorothy's might be better there about should we trust in idols? That, that's a category in. Um, but I would sort of raise the issue of does the trusting servant nation trust? And do they, do they trust? And do they, actually, do they trust in Cyrus as the one who comes to Francis? And I think then the central narrative are about trust and Zion, which can, can appear that a bit more. Now, it's just about time for a morning tea break, but that's just to show you that I'm not the only person out there who thinks that there's a potential. Barry Webb from Moore College I could also argue in a similar way. What I've got for you in the next several pages are some verses in 36 to 39 and how they connect to the rest of the book. I'm not planning to take you through the chapter 36 ones because I've given you a taste of that in the sermon. But after <coughs> our break, we'll start at chapter 37, verse 1, and um, I'll hopefully show you some cross references.